Just this week, I was sharing the gospel with a gentleman, and he said to me, you know, I've been in church all my life, but this afternoon my eyes have been opened. That is precisely what the gospel does. It reveals what it is that Christ offers men, life and immortality. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of 2 Timothy, and our passage today is from chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he takes a look at the character and source of our salvation. The term salvation needs to be delivered from the cheap way in which we use it in this century. It's a majestic word, and it's comprehensive in its scope. First, by pardoning us of our sin and declaring us righteous. Secondly, by conforming us to Christ's image. And thirdly, when we are completed in heaven with this new life. Now, that's the character of our salvation, whereby God justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He not only speaks of the character of our salvation, he also reminds us of the source of our salvation. From where does this salvation flow? Well, look at the end of verse 9. He plainly says that salvation is not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, if you trace the river of salvation all the way back to its source, it brings you into eternity past, ever before God created man, ever before he spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence. The Greek text, prochronon ionion, literally before eternal times. The King James renders it before the world began. The New English Bible puts it from all eternity Phillips paraphrases it before time began. God's purpose in salvation began in eternity past. The source of our salvation was not according to our works. There was nothing in eternity past that you had ever done because God hadn't even made you yet. It was not according to our works. This decision to save you was made ever before God spoke you into existence, ever before you did anything good or bad. The source of salvation goes back to God's gracious purpose. Now, please do not ask me to fully ex explain the doctrine of election because I do not fully understand it. And you ought to be weary, even leery, of anyone who is so careful to systematize it, as some do. But let me tell you, while I cannot fully explain it, I know it is a biblical doctrine, because the Bible says He chose us, He elected us before the foundation of the world. I also know that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to salvation. I know that 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says that God desires all men to be saved. I know that our election was based on God's foreknowledge, not of how we behaved, but how we responded to His sovereign grace. But I want to tell you, in eternity past, this whole plan began as God put His eye upon you and 
put his gracious hand upon your life. And I can tell you today, if you're worried about whether or not you're elect, it's this simple. The elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. Now, God mentions this to give us a deep sense of security, knowing that our salvation does not rest in us, but in God. And interestingly, whenever God mentions the doctrine of election, he does so in order to engender in us humility and a sense of gratitude for his kindness. So having explained the character of our salvation and the source of our salvation, Paul goes on to explain the ground of our salvation. Verse 10 explains the ground of our salvation on which it rests, namely the historical work of Jesus Christ when he appeared the first time. Look at verse 10. But now that is this purpose that God has in saving us has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Our salvation is firmly grounded on the historical work of Christ when he came the first time. When he appeared, epiphania. When the epiphany came, when God broke into time and human space through the incarnation of Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's moving from eternity past in verse 9, where God in his grace determined the plan, into time and space in verse 10, where God's plan is enacted. He appeared, he broke into human history, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. Christ did two things. The first thing he did when he brought salvation, when he appeared, is he abolished death. Secondly, the verse tells us he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the second thing he did. First, he abolished death. Death, as you know, is the wage that sin pays. For the wages of sin is death. Death summarizes our human predicament as a result of the fall and as a result of sin. Death is the grim penalty as described in each facet that death takes. Just like salvation, which is a big comprehensive word that has at least three major dimensions to it, even so death is a very big word in scripture and in the same fashion it has three dimensions to it. There is physical death, which is separation of the soul from the body. There is spiritual death, which is the separation of the soul from God. And there is the eternal death, the second death, which is the separation of both body and soul from God forever. All three forms of death were abolished by Christ. Christ came and he abolished death. Now think your way through this. In what sense did Christ abolish death? Because everywhere we look, we see it. I mean, what does Paul mean? He abolished death. Certainly, he cannot mean he eliminated death because both the Bible and experience tells us otherwise. I mean, look all around you. There's lost people everywhere who have no new life. They have no peace. They have no communion with God. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are walking in spiritual death. Open the daily newspaper. Every day there's new people who are listed in the local obituary. They've died physically. Not to mention the Bible is very clear twice over. It speaks of the second death that all who do not know Christ will face in an eternal liquid lake of fire without God. And so Paul, with a shout of victory, says Christ has abolished death. 
And he uses an interesting word, the word abolish, karte-geo in the original. If you look it up in the lexicons, it means to nullify, to make inoperative, to make ineffective. Paul is reminding us that Christ has rendered death inoperative. He has made it powerless. He has defeated death in relation to the Christian. Now let's take all three forms of death and walk our way through them as they relate to the true believer in Jesus Christ. First, in the physical realm, death for the Christian is no longer the grim prospect that it once was. The mature Christian knows that death for the believer is to die and to actually have great gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is great gain because death is the gateway to be with Christ, which Paul says to the Philippians is far better. In 1 Corinthians 3.22, when he talks about all the things that are ours, Christ and things present and things to come and life and death, he says that ours is death. In what sense do we own death? And the sense that the control of death through our relationship to Jesus Christ belongs to us. Death for the Christian is not something that we need to fear because Christ rendered it powerless such that he says even though the believer die, he will never die. Remember that in John 11? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies... And everyone, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In Christ's words, he has rendered death so innocuous that every believer will in one sense never die. Now, he does die. Jesus affirms that in the verse. But death has become such a trivial episode. It's just the passing of one form of eternal life into a more intensified form of eternal life such that he can say you will never die. So Christ is picturing death as a gateway from one kind of eternal life into eternal life in its fullest sense. Now Paul, when he thinks of the fact that Christ has abolished death, has all these things in mind such that he can tell the church at Thessalonica, that death, physically speaking, is just falling asleep. That not even physical death can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. And so when he pens that great epistle on the resurrection to the Corinthians, he asks, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He likens death to a military commander who has been defeated. And he likens it to a snake whose fangs have been pulled. Now, the snake or the scorpion is still alive, but he's been rendered inoperative, ineffective, because Christ has abolished death. Thanks be to God that we need not grieve as those who have no hope. And so first, in the physical realm, the Christian knows that death has been abolished, and he knows that in the spiritual realm that death no longer has power of us over us. He knows that it is inoperative. Why? Because when you have a birth from above... <clears throat> Your life changes. The Spirit 
bears witness to your human spirit that you've become a child of God. <clears throat> there is a new filial relationship with God. There is a sense in which when you crowd Abba, Father, Daddy, there's a sense that He is yours, that you are His child. Your will has become commandable because when God saves you, He is able to command you. Your human spirit has a living relationship with God. You know what Christ meant when He said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You know what Paul meant when he says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so spiritual death for the born-again Christian has been replaced with communion with God begun here on earth and someday to be perfected in heaven. And so we're told in Revelation 2 and verse 11 that those of us who are in Christ, the second death has no power over them. So all three aspects of death have been abolished for us by Christ. Now, negatively, <clears throat> he abolished death. That's the first aspect of his work. But positively, he brought life and immortality to light. That's the positive counterpart. Verse 10 says, Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It was by Christ's death and resurrection that he abolished death. And it's through the gospel that he now reveals life and immortality. Just this week, I was sharing the gospel with a gentleman. And he said to me, you know, I've been in church all my life. But this afternoon, my eyes have been opened. That is precisely what the gospel does. It reveals what it is that Christ offers men, life and immortality. Now, there's a sense in which God progressively revealed himself in the Old Testament. The gospel is in Genesis 3. It's unfolded through the Old Testament. But there is a sense in which the revelation of God is like the sun coming over the horizon. But God can say that when Christ epiphanied, when he broke into human space, the sun came high in the sky and the gospel brings to light in a full sense life and immortality. It is plain now to the people of God as the gospel is preached. And by the way, don't forget the one who's writing this. This is Paul awaiting his execution. Paul, who can, in his mind's eye, see the flash of the executioner's sword. Paul, who is about to face death, but with a shout of victory, he speaks of life and immortality. That's the shout of victory that the contemporary church needs to preach today. So then this is the gospel that is offered through the preaching of the gospel. Its character is transformation. It justifies you. It puts a holy calling on your life. And it will someday glorify you in heaven. Its source is an eternity past where God put his eye upon you in his grace. And its ground is the historical appearing of Jesus Christ when he came the first time. Paul wants to expand our thinking because he takes us all the way from eternity past, all the way to immortality and eternity future and everything in between. He, though in a Roman prison, is chained. His spirit is free to soar in his love and his relationship with Jesus Christ. And it ought to make you praiseworthy and filled with thanksgiving today when you consider this gospel. 
Now, that's my first point this morning. God wants to put some steel into this timid, weak, frail young man named Timothy. And he puts the same kind of steel in us when we consider what it is that the gospel has done. That's the main dimension of the gospel. But in addition, I also want us to consider our responsibility to the gospel. Paul now moves to the application that it has for Timothy and for us. Now, if you were to ask Paul, what is the very first responsibility a man has to the gospel? I mean, without stutter or stammer, he would say, of course, well, you must respond in faith. You must yield your will to Christ's will. You must trust in his shed blood and his resurrection to pay your debt for sin. But his focus here is not with the unbeliever. His focus is with the believer. And so he spells out in three dimensions the responsibility that the Christian has to the gospel. First, our responsibility to share the gospel. In verse 10, he reminds us that Christ abolished death and brought life through the gospel, and therefore we have a responsibility to preach it. Look at verse 11. For which, namely the gospel, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Now, in my Bible, I have the word I underlined because it's emphasized in the original Greek New Testament. There are some languages when you have a verb in it, it's contained the subject. We even do it rarely in English. I can say run. Run who? You run. Run. The, 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 the subject is implied. Well, this is especially true in Greek. The he, the she, the we, the us is very often, most of the time, left out. It's contained in the verb. You know from the way the verb is written what it is that he's speaking about, who it is that he's addressing. But understand, when God wanted to emphasize something, when he wanted to underline it in red, when he wanted to pound his fist on the pulpit, he would write the pronoun a second time. And that is what precisely what Paul does. He writes the word I contained in the verb a second time. In essence, Paul is saying, I, I of all people, have been appointed to proclaim the gospel. Paul has a sense of personal wonder that God would use him to preach the gospel. And really, any Christian who gets his mind around the gospel in his own sinful fallen state and what it is that God delivered him from will get the same sense of awe and wonder that God would choose you, that God would commission you, that he would privilege you, that he would give you a commission to preach the gospel to everyone who will listen. Now, Paul speaks here of being appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He describes a threefold appointment. So we might ask, might ask here, what is the difference between an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher? Well, I think in the sense of the gospel in which he's Speaking of, it was the apostles who formulated the gospel. In the sense, they wrote it down. Christ gave it directly to them. They wrote it down in this body of scripture that we call the faith. Preachers proclaim it like a herald and teachers systematically explain it. And while there are no apostles today, the Bible is crystal clear on that. And while most of you here have not been gifted of God or called of God to be preachers and teachers so as to earn your living from the gospel, all of us have a responsibility to share Jesus Christ. Paul, when he, he spoke of his eagerness, he said, Thus, 
For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, what is it that made Paul so eager to preach the gospel? Well, for starters, let's think about this term gospel. Paul is eager to preach something, and that something is the gospel. It's articular. He's not talking about a gospel, but the gospel. Now, the word is euangelion. It simply means good news. And in the first century era, very often this word euangelion, gospel, good news, did not always have a religious connotation as it typically does in our day. If you lived in the first century, you would use this word to describe any kind of good news. If you live today as a student and you passed a very difficult exam like my daughter did on Friday, her good news was, I passed. That would be the gospel of your schooling. And in some cases, it might be a miracle. If you're fighting a war and it finally ends, your gospel to your fellow soldier who has never heard is, the war is over, it's finished, we've won. If you are married and you have a baby, your gospel is, it's a boy, it's a girl. The gospel, the word gospel, was often used in a non-religious sense of any kind of good news. But understand here in 2 Timothy 1.10 and in Romans 1.15, he is not speaking of just any good news, but the good news. Not just a gospel, but the, the gospel, namely that Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And this is good news. This is the best news. Paul has already written to Timothy in his first letter. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That's good news. And if you are a sinner and you really understand what your sin deserves, this is the best news you will ever hear in this life. It ought to make you shout, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and as a teacher. Has God opened your eyes to be saved? Has he opened your eyes to the wonder of the gospel? If he has, then you ought to share it because good news is for sharing. When you have a birth in your home, you don't hide it. You're quick to announce it. If you have a cure for cancer, you don't keep it to yourself. You share it with others. You have something far greater than a cure for death. You have a cure for eternal death, and it's eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And you cannot monopolize it. You must share it. And so here is our responsibility to share the gospel. But secondly, I want you to consider our responsibility to suffer for the gospel. If you remember in verse 8, Paul has already summoned Timothy not to be ashamed and invited him to join him in suffering for the gospel. Let me read it again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. And of course, Paul never asked Timothy or anyone else to do anything that he is unwilling to do himself. And so he brings both verbs together in verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. The same two verbs. Throughout the New Testament, there is a link between suffering and the gospel. I was sharing the gospel with a gentleman last week, 
And I reminded him, I said, you have one of two choices. You can either reject the gospel like the man whom I shared with in the previous hour had just done, or you can accept the gospel, you can yield your will to Jesus Christ, you can allow him to become the Lord of your heart where he changes you and get new life. And his immediate response, it came right off his lips, why on earth would anyone want to reject the gospel? Why would any thinking person really want to reject such good news? Now that was a good question he was asking. But I want to tell you, the Bible teaches that when you preach the gospel, there will be people who will oppose you. Well, on what account do they oppose those who preach the gospel such that there are times when we need to suffer for it? It's very simple. The gospel is the gospel of grace. And the gospel of grace speaks of unmerited, undeserved, unearned salvation, the gift of God which shatters and decimates all human pride. The gospel forces a man to look at his rebellion before a holy God. The gospel forces a man to look at the root of sin. Namely, I want to be the Lord of my life and to submit to Christ's lordship. Listen, if you are not commandable, you're not savable. And when God saves a man, he is able to command a man. He's able to shape a man. Because when the grace of God that brings you salvation comes, it teaches you to say no to ungodliness and yes to things that are righteous. And so unregenerate man often loves his sin, Jesus said, more than he loves God. He does not and will not and care not with his natural mind admit the gravity, the grossness, the guilt of his sin. He doesn't like the truth that we are all equally in need of a Savior, that the ground is level at the cross, that prostitutes, primps, presidents and priests all have the same need to come and bow their heart before Jesus Christ is Lord. The lost man doesn't want to admit his bankruptcy, his complete helplessness and inability to save himself. And so, as Paul told the Corinthians, the gospel is a stumbling block. He spoke of the stumbling block of the cross. And so like the preacher that I heard several Sundays ago, he preached the whole hour about man and his merit and never once mentioned Christ and his cross. Why is that? Because Christ and his cross is an offense to the intellectual, to the self-righteous. It is a stumbling block. And very often one will substitute one in order, as Paul told the Galatians, that they might not be persecuted for the cause of Christ. But let me tell you, no preacher, no pastor, no pew warmer can faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ if they don't trim it, if they don't water it down. Friend, it's going to be offensive to some people. To some folks, it will be a sweet aroma to life. To others, it will be the stench of death in their nostrils. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM2, The Christian and the Gospel. Tomorrow we conclude our look at The Christian and the Gospel. Join us then when again we search the Scriptures.